Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. In this episode, I'm speaking with Paul Amardi, Chief Supporter Officer at the British Red Cross. Paul has a wealth of experience and I'm really pleased that he was so open and candid in his responses to some of my questions. There's some really good learning here from a leadership perspective, but also a few top tips around learning from fundraising organisations overseas as well. I hope that you enjoy listening. If you do, please do share the podcast. And if you listen on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you would rate it as well. Thanks so much. So today I'm joined by Paul Amardi, Chief Supporter Officer at British Red Cross. Thank you for joining me. Real pleasure. Paul and I used to work together at RNIB and um, and this has basically come about through uh, you being cajoled into this on uh, Twitter, I think. <laughs> cajoled, publicly shamed, I'm not quite sure <laughs> how you want to describe it, yeah. And uh, yeah, I should probably, I don't know, should I make a formal apology? We should probably let people know that yeah. yes. So my first role in the sector was as PA to Paul and Joe Jenkins at RNIB at the time. And Paul had an executive assistant who did a lot of really good work for you but one day (laughs) you saw fit to give me the task of uh of booking some flights to scotland and i and i i just booked them to edinburgh i just thought if you're going to scotland you should go to edinburgh and um the next day i arrived at the office and rachel said um well paul's in edinburgh and i was like oh phew i thought you're gonna say he missed his flight (laughs) he's like no he's supposed to be in glasgow so um yeah so that that was like a full day of you being out of the office is me thinking oh no how do I feel um, but a lot yeah. of water under the bridge since then and um I can remember yeah not loving your work at that particular point in time but you know easy come easy go so here we are now yeah yeah today we're going to talk about fundraising leadership perhaps you can start by giving us a bit of an introduction about yourself and your role at Richard Cross well, if we start at the beginning, I'm a career fundraiser. I think you probably don't hear that expression that much anymore, but that pretty much means that since graduating, I've always been in income generation and done that for various organisations. People talk about falling into fundraising. I, I guess that um, I would you know, categorise myself as having done so, but in a way, fundraising was something that, say I was destined to do, is too, too strong a word, but something that I, that I started doing it and I felt immediately comfortable doing it. Um, I've always wanted to kind of be involved in a situation in which I was adding value, making a difference, talking to people and enabling them and myself to do good things. And so fundraising really kind of loosely fitted that bill. Started my fundraising career at, well, I'm going to date myself, uh, NCH it then was. It went for a change of name and became Action for Children. And there I was a community fundraiser for Essex and Kent. Rapidly kind of began to specialise in corporate fundraising, spent six years there and then started working for an organisation called Radar, a disability organisation, then a Cheshire, uh, Sense and then RNIB. And actually it was Leonard Cheshire where I first became an actual departmental lead and and then actually when I was at Sense I became a director of fundraising for the really first time. And then that's where we connected at RNIB and uh, thereafter left RNIB after a really, really kind of happy time, despite spending probably one more day in uh, Edinburgh than I should have done as well. Um, and moved on to NSVCC, where I was the um, director of fundraising also, 
uh, and thereafter to Diabetes UK, um, MS Society, and now British Red Cross, which is where I am. Um, and it's a post I've held for just over four months, Chief Supporter Officer, as you describe it, and it's absolutely amazing, Bess, absolutely amazing. It's really funny because you did it, you know, Chief Supporter Officer, what's one of them? I mean, it's all in the title, really. It's about finding new ways to work with people who are engaging with, really trying to find ways in which we inspire them to do great things for this amazing organisation. So we're going to focus on leadership specifically. What does leadership mean to you? Yeah, that's a really easy question, Beth. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. You know, there's so many different ways that you could describe leadership or summarise leadership. But I would say that there's probably about three or four elements that constitute leadership. The first I would say is that you've got to have a vision. So there's something around visioning and and kind of, you know, trying to identify the end point and where you're trying to get to. And I think what's really, really important about that is that it's about the time frame that you're working to. So in my head, and I'm guessing in most other kind of leaders' uh, uh, head, they're thinking about what's over the horizon. I'm thinking about the stuff that potentially some of my other colleagues aren't because I'm trying to prepare this organisation for, you know, for five, ten years hence. And I know that sounds really kind of grandiose, but it definitely isn't just about trying to identify what's happening in the short term. It's definitely about that long-term piece. And I'm really, really conscious as well that sometimes not everybody's going to align with your vision, not everybody's going to kind of agree with it, but you've got to definitely have that, that clarity of purpose that clarity of end point, as it were, and it's got to be something that's, you know, as I say, sufficiently kind of forward-looking, really. And then, and this is the bit that I feel really, really strongly about, so, you know, visioning. And then the, the second thing for me is about, you know, enabling. So I'm really, really conscious that there's some stuff that I'm good at, but there's some stuff that most other people are absolutely better at. And so from my perspective, it's about enabling people to be their better selves, you know, to bring their best selves and unleash their potential and achieve amazing things for whatever organisation. What I want to do is be creating a situation in which people's potential is fulfilled, that their creativity is realised, that they've got a licence to operate and do some amazing stuff, but in a way that enables us to achieve our vision. So I just love... Um, and in awe of working with talented people. And, you know, I really see that kind of heart of my job is liberating their talent, their passion, their commitment to do amazing things. And then there's a kind of third dimension for me, which is definitely around communication. So I've talked a lot about that vision. And for me, it's around communicating what that vision is, what that endpoint is, and making sure that people feel connected. People understand what the journey that they're, you know, that we're on, uh, the role critically that they're going to play in that journey, and the fact that they can kind of contribute to it. But I think the kind of communication piece is absolutely important because sometimes, in terms of enabling an organisation to achieve its vision, you're going to be faced with you're going to make difficult decisions. You're going to tell people some stuff that they're, you know, that they're not particularly wanting to hear. You've got to inspire people. You've got to bring people with you. So having good communication skills is an absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, an absolutely essential characteristic of effective leadership. And as a kind of subsection of the communication, it's my last bit. There's something about, you know, exhibiting, as it were. So I'm really, 
keen to don't always get there you know to kind of model some of the kind of values and the behaviors that that i think are going to get us to a you know to a great place so exhibiting transparency you know being open receptive to new ideas being non-hierarchical all of that kind of that type of stuff for me is really important so um, something i'm really proud of that we've actually started over the past two weeks is we've got this whole reverse mentoring scheme so i've got a series of mentors who are telling me what to do and uh, and how to do it and, and what have you and um what's really important i dare i say it, refreshing is that they're colleagues whose voices otherwise wouldn't necessarily be heard and so we've deliberately targeted the you know the reverse mentoring scheme at people who are relatively new to the organization potentially relatively junior in, in our organizational structure but who've got great ideas great things to say and are unafraid to say them and um yeah just completed the first round of those uh, of the reverse reverse mentoring um initiative and uh, i've learned a lot yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, and maybe we should talk a little bit about the communication aspect. What I was saying before we started in terms of this kind of, I think some people call it a democratic approach to to leadership where everybody participates in the decision making and it's all about enabling and empowering and all the stuff that you've just been talking about. But how do you find it when you've then got to potentially intervene or make a call on something? How do you gently shift that leadership style and that communication style to be more authoritative? I really love that you said gently shift because sometimes it's not a gentle shift. Sometimes, you know, like it's just got to happen, right? I can say, you know, happy to kind of point out that in each one of the organisations that I've worked for, the leadership style that's required has been different. You know, I'm conscious of the fact that sometimes I know that my leadership style has necessarily been different in in each of the places that I've worked. And that's because the circumstances have required that, you know, Um, I'm not, I wouldn't pretend to be a management theorist or whatever, but there is one thing I do recognise is the importance of recognising the situation that you're in and adapting your management style to it. So I would call that situational leadership. This is a demonstration of the fact that I'm not a management theorist, but, you know, there are situations that you've got to um, recognize you know are you in a startup situation are you in a turnaround situation are you in a situation in which you're causing an organization to adapt and evolve or you're in a realignment situation you know and I think that one of the very first things that things I've got better at is walking into a situation and identifying which one of those that you're in and obviously if you're in a say for instance a turnaround situation then your leadership style or my leadership style is likely to be much more directive than you know than if I was in a situation in which we're realigning where you're trying to maintain all that's really really good but tweak and amend at the edges so it's definitely about getting clarity about what type of situation you find yourself in and then flexing accordingly but I think that even though I've talked about a different leadership style in each place you've got to have a core which is about your values and how you want to engage with people so even if you are in a situation in which you're much more directive your management style might be much more akin to being described as micromanaging if people understand why you're doing that I think that that helps the situation and so if you are in a turnaround situation you haven't got a huge amount of time to kind of to get things better I think people will then understand if you're ever so slightly less democratic or if you've got to make an immediate call on, on, you know, on stuff because time's not going to allow you to to do that whole reflective, you know, consultative, what do we think about that kind of piece? I read a blog by Rob Woods and he was talking about leadership. He was basically doing a book review, the book 
I don't remember the name of, so it's not. It's uh, yeah, right, it was okay. a football reference. Okay, actually, and okay. I remember that right. into football. <laughs> um, and he was talking about some of the best team players are those who have been, in a derogatory sense, sometimes called the sort of water carriers, yes. as opposed to the like. Yeah. I yeah, don't know. the creative kind of yeah, yeah shiny kind of, person yeah, that scores exactly. the goal or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's that's really relevant, um, particularly to, to leadership, sort of not necessarily of a fundraising director or an organisation, but people within teams okay. who can demonstrate leadership yes. or basically shape the environment to enable other people to be able yeah. to yeah. improve the performance of the team yeah. as a whole. Yeah. But I wonder, um, from your experience, and perhaps you just sort of touched on that, mm. in terms of transforming an organisation or turning an organisation round, you kind of need to be part of that water carrier role, but it feels like you need to be a focal point because yeah. people need to sort of get behind the leader. Yeah. Is that something that you found? Yeah, no, I totally get Rob's point um, or the example that he was drawing from the book that he was, um, you know, quoting. But I think that that's a commentary on the different roles that you need a team to play or what have you. So, you know, um, if we're talking about water carriers, you know, then, yeah, I was going to go with a kind of whole Chelsea reference there. You know, every team needs a kind of Kante and every team needs an Eden Hazard as well. And But I think that what's really interesting about leading in that regard is that sometimes it's about creating a team where people can kind of... Um, move between those two roles as well or the various other roles that you need so sometimes I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, you know I've been part of the team even though I've been leading it where I've been happy to kind of do the legwork or what have you and other times you've got to do the more kind of charismatic inspirational stuff so it's just about recognizing that you know and I think that's I think that's the point that is emerging and the scene that's been emerging from you know from this conversation that there are different leadership styles different leadership roles and you'll have to kind of flex and kind of, you know, move between all of them as best you possibly can. And I think that part of the challenge of leadership is that sometimes you get locked into one leadership style and, and that's all you can do. I don't mind sharing at all that times when I've really, really struggled most would have been when I wasn't the right leader or I didn't demonstrate the right leadership approach in terms of what the situation required. Times when I've been incredibly reflective, consultative, try to take people you know, with me cajole or whatever, and, and, and it flopped, Beth, you know, because the immediacy of the situation required something that felt a little bit more more out the front, over the top with me guys, you know, and girls and yeah. fellas and what have you. So it's really, really difficult to, you know, to make sure that you're adopting the right leadership style at the right time. But you've got to be, I think, one of the things I feel that I've tried to challenge myself is to make sure that I understand the situation that I'm in and I'm exhibiting the right style, but still, as I say, being true to my core and to my, you know, to my principles. Because I think if people recognise intent, they're more likely to wish you well. That's really interesting in terms of flexing your leadership style, because, you know, the stuff that I've heard and read is always about, like, tell me what your leadership style is yeah. and it tends to be somebody saying one style yeah. and it's and it always sounds yeah. amazing and actually it's not that it's a, it's a mix of uh, it's a mix of styles isn't it I feel that really really strongly so strongly that I'm interrupting you, you know but no I mean I you know as we all have I'm sure you know you've either been interviewing people or they've interviewed you and they'll say to you, what's your leadership style? And you, you know, standard words are, oh, it's about empowering this and it's, and, and yeah, you know, uh, uh, why not? And absolutely, they're really, really important. But uh, yeah, to my point, I think that 
a more nuanced answer is recognizing that sometimes empowering can't always be your default or your kind of go-to style. It's got to be something that requires something more, you know, more immediate. And um, again, again, you know, with real candor, times when I have, you know, I've not thrived is when I haven't kind of got clarity about what the expectation is from the people that I'm working with uh, or reporting to, you know. And so, you know, note to self is always try to kind of get that clarity um, yeah. right from the outset. That understanding of the task is absolutely critical because particularly if you're in a transformation style, because if you think that, you know, your brief or the requirement of the situation is transformation and everybody else thinks, no, oh, we're in, it's all about just kind of realignment, gentle kind of changes and what you, more you you're up against it, aren't you? Because A, you've got no mandate to change and also people are like, where the hell is this coming from? So you've worked as a director in various different organisations. So one of the things I was interested to hear from you was about how you go about settling into a role. How do you go into a new household name, charity, and begin to settle and embed yourself and your leadership? want to answer that question as if there's a kind of set route or what have you I, I would say that it's been incredibly important for me to be able to talk passionately about the work and so one of the things that has been absolutely important obviously is getting out seeing our services and what have you it's absolutely made that a priority I would definitely say that one of the most kind of powerful and unstructured parts of my induction has been that unstructured element actually it's been the kind of conver- the informal conversations that you just have with kind of people that you bump into in the corridor or, or making coffee and what have you they've been really really important i would say that they've been really kind of rich for me in, in terms of a developing relationships but b learning stuff that otherwise you might not have kind of you know got so i think one of the things that's really, really important to me is, is is trying to be as accessible as possible, trying to have those conversations. And again, if we're doing that whole candid stuff, you know, it doesn't come naturally to me because I'm quite shy. You know, it's hard sometimes or not easy just to kind of strike up a conversation with somebody because they just happen to be next to you making a coffee. Mm-hmm. But I, I can genuinely say that each time I've done that, I've learned something about what my colleague is doing and built a relationship that I can then go back on and say you know that thing that you were talking about talk to me a little bit more about it the reverse mentoring as an example has been absolutely amazing because that's enabled me to deepen my insights but also creating space for you know in making the effort actually not creating space for um uh you know making the effort just to talk to people that you wouldn't normally and that's both within fundraising and and and, and without as well what do you think are the biggest challenges facing I guess fundraising leaders at the moment so Joe Joe Jenkins yeah. recently put yeah. out an article saying that the sector's lacking talent yeah controversial yeah, yeah, um, yeah but I noticed you've got 138 million to raise as well so that that'll probably be top but what do you think of the of the challenge what are the challenges for you so I really love Joe's blog by the way and uh yeah um, you know, he he was shunning a spotlight there. I think over and alongside that, though, my biggest challenge, and I think it's a challenge that's reflected on on the conversations I'm, you know, fundraising directors and others are having, is the fact that I still don't think that we recognise that the 
fundraising paradigm has changed completely over the past three or four years in terms of how we'll go about generating income, maintaining relationships with current supporters and developing relationships with prospective ones, whoever they are. Our existing or historical model for engaging with supporters is now out, you know, out the window. And I would say equally that we, so we know that the world is changing, but we don't yet know what the world is still changing to. Um, and I would defy anybody to tell me that they know exactly what we're moving to. I was speaking to a group of other fundraising directors and, you know, the fact that we know that we're moving something that feels transactional and volume-based to something that feels, you know, much more relationship-based and increasing emphasis on kind of, you know, digital channels and increasing emphasis on engagement, we still don't know whether that's actually going to translate to more money. And even those that are further along the, the road in terms of providing proof of concept can't genuinely say, hand on heart, that absolutely in three or four years or five years' time, that the sector per se will be generating more income. And so in a really kind of strategic, serious space, a, a grudging admission that, that the world is changing and that we're in paradigm shift, but a lack of uncertainty about what the alternative model is going to be and that it will work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and actually, where that leaves you is competing sets of difficult conversations because you're having conversations with your fundraising colleagues and your teams encouraging them to kind of move to that new world and become less invested in in channels and processes and ways of working that have historically worked but also in parallel having conversations with finance directors with trustees with other people with you know with your ops director saying we can't be certain that the trajectory that we have achieved before is still going to continue because mm. as you pointed out the world is changing mm. so that, for me, is definitely the stuff that keeps me awake at night. I would hope to be in a situation where our new ways of working and our increasing emphasis on engagement and they have a rich supporter experience and offers validated and predicated on insight and all that good stuff and all the stuff that we talk a lot about. I'd love to know or be in a situation in which I could be 100% certain that that will work, but we don't. It doesn't mean that we should be any less committed to trying it. I think that's where the leadership piece comes in, though, isn't it? That you need to be committed to trying it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Manage expectations. Absolutely, 100%. 100%. And, and it's the only game in town, Beth, as well. So I'm really conscious that, you know, that if you were to say to me, well, you know, if not that, then what? I wouldn't know what to say to you. So it is definitely about that absolute commitment to it. But I think we need to be realistic that we're still in a space or we're still in a moment that represents, you know, us establishing proof of concept. Mm. Can we talk a bit about your extracurricular stuff and what what that has um, given you and how it's sort of enriched your approach? So, uh, chair of the Institute of Fundraising, yeah, yeah. you set up Black Fundraisers Network. Yeah, yeah. You're involved with the IFC. Yeah. I, I tried to Google that, I couldn't get to the bottom of it. It came up with a lot of stuff in Dutch. Critically, I mean, I've always tried to do things that I felt were going to make me a, a better fundraiser, a more knowledgeable fundraiser and what have you. Of all of the things that I've done, I would always say that they've definitely made me more effective, you know, given me uh, learning opportunities, introduced me to people whose expertise has kind of blown me away. So that's a good look, right? You know, so if I think about some of the contacts and the relationships and the learnings I've developed for my involvement with the Institute of Fundraising, the IOF, we'd be here doing three or four podcasts. Mm -hmm. The IFC is, in a sense, the almost uh, European version of the IOF, in a, but it's primarily around creating learning opportunities and networking opportunities for international fundraisers and delivers uh, the IFC, which is in October every year, uh, the largest gathering 
in Europe of fundraisers. It's a three or four day, depending on how long you want to go to go to it for Skillshare. And again, in terms of the kind of contacts that I've generated from that and the learning, it's been absolutely, absolutely brilliant. But then the other driver is that I really do believe, and I think most of us do, I think it's one of the things that unifies the sector. I've always believed in having the strongest possible sector and bodies like uh, IOF and, and IFC, that's what they deliver. But I've also always believed in you know, living my values as well. So the other, you know, extracurricular, if you want to kind of call it that, passion for me is about diversity. One of the things I've been doing, having obviously I've long stepped away from being the, 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 the chair of, of the Institute, but I'm really, really pleased that I'm sitting on the um, advisory panel for inclusion, diversity uh, and equality. So it's EDI, sorry, uh, for the IOF. Um, which recently launched the Change Manifesto, which is all about embedding EDI within the sector. You'll know all the kind of challenges there, Beth, I'm sure, in terms of representation of people from a diverse background, challenges around gender representation, particularly at senior leadership, leadership levels, challenges around uh, disability representation, a whole range of issues of that type. And I've, uh, the point that I've always um, felt in that regard is there's such an irony that we're, we're not as great as we want to be. We're not even as great as, you know, the commercial sector or the public sector in that regard. And if you think about, you know, the causes that we represent, it's a bit of a kind of, what the hell's that about? Yeah. For me, the extracurricular stuff has always been stuff that as I said, has enabled me to be a better fundraiser, but also strengthen the sector. So um, I, I, I've always been really, really pleased um, to, you know, to do that stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that demonstrates the the sort of intrinsic leadership, if you can say that, in terms of wanting to build that strong sector. Yeah. You know, that's if that's one of your values that will come through yeah. naturally, I guess, in terms of um, in terms of how you communicate with your various different audiences. Oh, better. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Touching on the European yes. side of things, yeah. and I guess drawing on your experience of, of working with IFC as well, what do you think we can learn from other countries? Who should we be looking to in the UK? There is something obviously quite unique to the UK fundraising kind of market, but I would say that there's one thing that I've always really admired about the American fundraising model, which is that particularly in the kind of high value giving space, you know, there is an expectation that if you're joining an organization on the board or a senior level, that you're going to be a contributor, you're, you know, as a trustee, you're, you know, you're going to be somebody that, you know, that gives um, at a relatively high level. Uh, I think you can look particularly again in, in, in America where they've had people like Dan Pilotta have shifted the conversation around things like core costs and how an organisation should be really unashamed to talk about the fact that sometimes if you, you know, always if you want to grow you're going to have to invest um, and um, uh, what you're doing from that perspective is is really beginning to invest in the long-term stability of the organisation going forward. I think, again, in the American context, really great at, um, you know, um, I look at my own, you know, our sister national society, the American Red Cross, in terms of creating movements and, and, and really moving from that kind of transactional relationship with your cause to something that feels like a real expression of your your passion and your commitment and your support to what the organisation is trying to achieve. But that's one, I mean, I'm, I'm pleased in a way um, that, you know, you talked about the, the, the IFC because I think that increasingly, as we, as a, as a UK audience or, or market, 
look outside and think of, you know, or move away from our traditional kind of fundraising models, that ability to um, uh, to benefit from or look at what other, other markets are doing is going to be increasingly important. It's nothing to do with me, but um, one of the things that is an amazing, uh, you know, it's a testament to the organisation is the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement just has a, a philosophy which is about, skip, you know, skill sharing and learning from other parts of the movement. And um, so I feel really, really fortunate to have gone, actually, even in the short time I've been here to places like Budapest um, and, and spent three or four days getting an understanding about how other, other uh, national societies are tackling some of the, the, the challenges that are around growing your, you know, your supporter um, your supporter base, finding new ways in which you're engaging with people, getting them to, um, you know, to commit to the campaigns that you, you know, that we're involved in. So just picking up on a couple of the things that you mentioned, um, the Dan Palotta, mm. uh, it's a TED talk, isn't it? Yeah. Like well, it's more yeah. than a TED talk. It's a, an, you know, it's a, a series of conversations with the, you know, with the American public, I guess, and the international yeah. public. But yes, there is that infamous TED talk or famous TED talk. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I came across that when I was doing my masters at cast on the road and it was just like oh my god somebody's actually talking about this in a really coherent way and yeah. just putting it out there yeah. it was really yeah. it was really kind of refreshing and um and something that i would encourage everybody to look at if they haven't already yeah um, great plug do you not think i'm gonna you know in terms of asking a question a little bit but do you not think that the conversation around administration costs and what have you it's almost in the wrong kind of way, it's fundraising's dirty little secret. We don't want to talk about it. We probably have got, you know, a coherent story to tell, but, it, it, you know, we're not that confident about telling it, basically. Yeah, and I think we're also not sure how to calculate it. Right, OK. So in inconsistency as well. <laughs> yeah. I hear that. I hear that. Because yeah. sometimes you look at other organisations and you're like, what, it's like, what, 90p in the pound or something? Yeah. Like, how do you do that? Like, what are you... Yeah. What are you shoving into that pot of money yeah, do you know what I mean I so I think we're not consistent in the way that we account on things right. but I think there's also I think I think even fundraisers are perhaps sometimes guilty of not being um, transparent yeah and knowledgeable just, oh, knowing. just being like ballsy enough to right. say actually it costs us money to run the organisation do you know yeah, what I mean yeah. rather than going in and saying you know yeah. our admin costs are really low yeah. and so yeah. this is a great thing for you to support because it all goes to the cause yeah. so I think um, I think it, I feel like it's come quite a long way because people right. obviously people are talking about it a lot yeah. aren't they in yeah. the sector yeah. but there's probably still a bit more work to do on yeah it. Say your counterpart in the states. You alluded to them shifting from transactional to sort of building movements. I think that that's more around how we're talking about the difference that we're making and trying to kind of create ways in which people don't necessarily just feel that all they're doing is giving money and, and, and giving donations, but you know, taking a broader set of actions that will enable them to say, you know, supporting us and connecting with us is, is, is an expression of who they are. But yeah. um, we're really enabling them to kind of deliver against that. That's something that I've not heard said before actually that supporting us is, is an expression of who they are I think that's probably where everybody's trying to get to isn't it I think so yeah, yeah. I mean and maybe you've not heard I mean, I mean I'm sure you have but I mean that's that's kind of what I that's what I think is the paradigm that we're trying to you know that we're yeah. trying to shift to and and you know, one of the things you asked me about, one of the challenges, and I think one of the kind of um, modern day trends, isn't it, is, we, you know, what we call disintermediation with people bypassing conventional charities and, and just kind of 
I'm gonna do that. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm, you know, I don't. I don't need the British Red Cross. I don't need what you know to achieve my aim. And so, what we need to do is to position our respective organisations as enabling them to do what they really want to do. And that's our. You know, that's a that's a massive challenge for us as an organisation and and the sector as a whole. But you know, that's. I think that's the direction we need to be facing. I don't know if you remember, you know, three or four years or so ago, the jungle. So that was that refugee camp in Calais. And one of the things that kind of characterised it was that people who were so outraged by the narrative, the news narrative, and also moved by the, you know, dare I say it, the plight of, you know, of, of, of the people who found themselves gathered there were, you know, gathering themselves, you know, blankets, food yeah. and, and chartering boats, whatever it is you do, and taking yeah. relief to a community that was in crisis, which is traditionally what the Red Cross has done. So yeah. you kind of think, if that, well, how, how does that then work for us? How do we position ourselves as supportive of that and harnessing and corralling that effort as well? Because we shouldn't have the kind of arrogance to assume that we're the only people that have got solutions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so, you are maybe a better place to help exactly. those people be Ex- more effective exactly. in their exactly. efforts. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In terms of major appeals, how does an organisation know that it that it's their time to be able to do that and they have the infrastructure in place to do it? It's a, a really fair and obvious, but actually sometimes quite a difficult question to answer, um, particularly and obviously for an organisation like, you know, the Red Cross per se, which is founded in emergency response. That's mm-hmm. what we, you know, that's where our origins lie. I mean, to say that it's even in our DNA is, is to understate it. It's been a real, you know, journey for me into that as an issue because this is the first time as an organisation, you know, that I've joined an organisation that has that within its DNA. So um, I'm beginning to learn about some of the kind of challenges and the processes that we've got in place to kind of tackle that. And I find it really interesting and also (laughs) quite challenging intellectually as well because um, I've joined the organisation at a time when, you know, we recognise that actually emergencies and therefore our response to them whether it's via an appeal or what we're doing on the ground is changing so increasingly we're talking about protracted crisis so not something where there's a, an incident an earthquake or what have you and to now much more you know protracted crisis i mean i don't know i mean yemen has been a, a conflict situation for how long are we talking about four years four or five years syria itself much longer getting close to you know close to a decade you know and so we need to find ways in which we acknowledge that the world is increasingly um, moving to, you know, extended or protracted crises or silent emergencies as well. And there's also, of course, there's only so much you can do as well. So the direct um, and much shorter and puncher answer to your question is it's something that we are really, really working hard to get um, ever more strategic about. Um, and part of that strategic response is about creating categories of appeal, I guess, so uh, which will enable us to better prioritise how we're going to respond and what is absolutely important to us. So somewhere like, um, you know, Bangladesh and the Rohingya crisis, you know, an appeal that we know we need to be investing in absolutely, um, even though it's it's not, it, well, it's increasingly back onto the news agenda. I've talked about Syria, I've talked about Yemen. So being ever more explicit about appeal categorization is is one of uh, is one of the first things that we are you know doing um i should say actually um that because you never know when an appeal is going to hit it's very difficult to build appeal fundraising expected income into a fundraiser's target yeah. so anything that they then raise in an appeal has to come on top of their target and that can drive behaviors 
And so what we're trying to do is find ways in which we encourage and reward our fundraisers for when they're doing appeals. And then I think a third strand in terms of what we're doing is, and it goes back to my opening point about the changing nature of crisis, is trying to make sure that we're building permanent capacity to fundraise for those protracted crises as well. And what that will enable us to do is to ensure that we're continuing to deliver our BAU fundraising as well as, um, you know, doing that emergency appeal overlay as well. It ain't easy, Beth. It really, it, it, you know, it really isn't. You know, I mean, I can say to you now that, you know, the income that we will raise in, in 2018 will be significantly lower than the income that we raised in 2017. And that won't be at all to do with, you know, less effective fundraising or, or, or indeed any of the trends that we've just been talking about in the earlier part. It would simply be that there was a significant number of, of nationally significant events. So Manchester, the, you know, the, the horrible, you know, events that took place at the Ariana Grande concert. Grenfell, of course, would be another illustration and, and, and the terror attacks that took place on, on West, in Westminster. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you. Shall we finish with a question that I've been asking everybody, which is about is there a book, personal ethos that's inspired oh. your work? <laughs> okay. Um, so the person I would say, but I hesitate to say his name because it'll get really big headed um, and uh, it's my brother. Uh, so no, I would definitely say that um, as a genuinely inspirational person um, and as a person who's been a role model to me, who actually probably tipped me into getting into fundraising as well, because um, he was uh, uh, doing great things at, at, at the uh, YMCA actually, um, when I first started thinking about fundraising, but then he ultimately moved on to organisations like the Prince's Trust. But he was definitely the person who kind of said, if this is where your values align, uh, then, um, or where you see, uh, you know, your values being expressed in fundraising is a, a great profession to be in. Um, and then in terms of kind of resilience, a desire to, to create good for communities and societies, for, I don't know, for motivation, but yeah, definitely my, my, my role model, my inspiration. And this is Manny. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for um, for taking the time to speak with me, Paul. Oh, I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, and it still doesn't kind of quite wipe out the Edinburgh Glasgow scenario, <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> but it's gone some way to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank cool. you, Ben. All right. Thanks, Paul. I really enjoyed chatting with Paul. Here are the key learnings that I took from the chat. First of all, situational leadership. So I think when we hear people talk about their leadership style, about how they encourage participative decision making and everything seems very calm and inspiring, when in reality you need to be able to shift your leadership style to be able to address different situations. And while I've personally found that trying to empower people within your team um, is obviously the way to go, right? Sometimes you need to make a call um, and I really enjoyed hearing from Paul about that. I think the concept that he sticks to is, is around situational leadership. So being really clear on what the situation is, reading that well and adapting and realigning your style of leadership to reflect that. The second learning is around leaders living their values. And I think this came across really strongly with Paul and has probably been fundamental to his success as well, really. And that's about his beliefs around building the strongest possible voluntary sector and about um, creating and maintaining a really diverse sector as well. So I think that's really something for individuals to consider when they're aspiring to be or moving into leadership roles, rather than playing the, the sort of stereotypical leader is to demonstrate leadership that's true for them. 
third learning for me was around developing appeals. And I think this was a really interesting one. So Paul talked about this notion of protracted crises. So if we look at Yemen and Syria, but I think this is also really relevant for the UK as well, as we see some of the really complex, really difficult social problems that we're facing. You know, poverty in the UK is obviously a huge challenge for us. Some of the health challenges that we're facing as well. It's not so much that it's a protracted crisis in the same way as, as the problems in Yemen are, but obviously they're hugely ingrained. And how do you create ongoing appeals for them? I think it was really interesting what, what Paul was saying about building the capacity to develop and maintain those appeals so that you can do the business as usual fundraising work as well. If you enjoyed listening, please do share and please do like on iTunes if that's how you roll. Thanks very much.